Yeah, you guessed it. The box. She was visibly uncomfortable when she saw that thing and said, Dad, is there a person in that box? Well, why, yes, Madison. Yes, there is, I replied. Well, how do they get them in a box that small, she asked. Oh, they'll fit, Maddie. You just got to fold them a few times. (laughs) I know, right? The delivery was good. The punchline was spot on. But no, instead of laughing, she immediately lost some color, told me she was going to get sick. And my first thought was, well, father of the year is looking a little shaky right now. Back to our word at the beginning, a farceur. What's that? It's a comedian and a facile one. Makes it look easy. And you know a lot of successful reps in our space, they are that. They are facile farceurs, right? They just seem to effortlessly be able to put a smile on people's faces. Something I was clearly struggling with on that particular day. Well, one implant system that's no laughing matter is the Biomet Comprehensive Shoulder. One of the more amazing things I've had the honor to represent over the years. And today, you're going to hear from the surgeon whose name is synonymous with it, Mayo Megastar, Dr. John Sperling. You're definitely going to want to hang around for that. Well, speaking of laughter, here's some super interesting trivia. Bob Burns, a comic back in the 1940s, is credited with the birth of what you heard earlier, the laugh track. Quick rabbit trail. He played this instrument of his own creation, and he called it a bazooka, a word you probably recognize. The U.S. Army later adopted that for their anti-tank rocket launcher. Well, while on a radio show in 1946, Burns was bringing the house down with the jokes. Uproarious laughter that was captured on tape. A few weeks later, the show featured another comedian whose act was going the opposite direction, completely bombed. So the producers had a brilliant idea. Simply dub in the laughs from Burns' performance on to the comic that was flailing, and the laugh track was born. And then some of you are probably wondering, what was that comedian saying that was so freaking funny? Well, Device Nation, the voice of operative orthopedics and the only medical device podcast fueled entirely by caffeine and sarcasm, we researched those very Bob Burns jokes and discovered one that always brought the house down. You ready for this? It'll be released next quarter. What a card, that guy. Well, you know what? It didn't take long for TV to figure it out. Inventor Charles Douglas created the Laugh Box in the late 1950s. He basically modified a typewriter, I guess like a keyboard sample that could be noodled on to orchestrate those laugh tracks, creating a veritable symphony of guffaws and giggles. If you want to hear examples of this melodic mirth, check out archives of The Odd Couple, The Beverly Hillbillies, one of my favorite shows, or Bewitched. Old Darren on that show really embodied that dubious life lesson. One should never be far from a martini. He always had a drink in his hand for some reason. Well, something that stirred me recently that didn't involve vermouth or a blue chief stuffed olive was the word we started out the show with. Equinox, fall, harvest season. You know what? In a business season we seem to be in right now in device sales, that harvest season, the fall, exposes the people who were doing all the right things all along, but it also unfortunately exposes those who weren't plowing and planning. Early 
earlier in the season, relational plowing and planning, two things we ignore at our peril, whether you're the lowliest ASR all the way up the food chain to CEO. Speaking of just that, I was on the phone once with a very high-profile surgeon who had recently switched to another company's implant. I couldn't resist. I said, doctor, I just wanted to prepare you emotionally. You're not going to be getting a Christmas card from the CEO this year. He didn't skip a beat. He said, well, I never got a Christmas card when I was one of his highest volume surgeons, so I guess it's just going to be another year. (laughs) I'm sure the shareholders were really yucking it up over that one. You know, sometimes the best way to get a bunch of cases is to simply not lose the ones you already have, right? True story here that involves local leadership. Let's look at leader A. He's lost a lot of talent over the years. The reps you want to have around with a real systemic morale problem. And let's contrast that with leader B. And to keep our data honest, both of these leaders are in the same company, same bags, same challenges. This leader's lost no talent. Nobody's leaving. Nobody's quietly quitting. No one's even talking about it, right? They're all thrilled to be in a foxhole with him. And morale is amazing. Again, this is an apples to apples scenario. Same back order, same inventory commission challenges. Why are reps? responding so differently. Well, it all goes to leadership. And guess what? We are all leaders in some form or fashion. And this particular road leads us right back to Dr. Greg Vecchi, former FBI BSU chief, friend of the show and developer of the Behavioral Influence Stairway. We talked at great length about this in a customer interaction context, but I honestly think it's even more powerful applied to our leadership armamentarium. Let's get our steps in. Start at nothing. You really don't know the person. Next step, empathy, lowering yourself to understand the person across from you, which leads to the next step, rapport. And if you do those two things consistently and sincerely, keyword there, over time, you're going to develop trust, which ultimately can lead to the last step, influence and behavior change. So what can we take from these steps practically for our leadership roles? Two huge things, whether it's people on your team or the organization around you as a distributor or a team lead, a CEO, we have to subordinate ourselves, which opens up the door for sincere empathy with our so-called units of labor. (laughs) Many never get past this, right? Subordination does not come natural to any of us, especially me. A lot of armies of one in this business, and we ignore this to our harm. Number two, Rapport, there's life in the interrogative and death in a declarative. Asking them questions, actively listening, demonstrating that we're listening by making changes to accommodate their concerns. This is much easier, by the way, if you're really walking in empathy. If you're not, you can end up just waiting for them to stop talking. Look, I need to be reminded of this constantly. Empathy and rapport are one of the first casualties for me when things get really busy, which is basically all the time in this business. Uh, Have to be intentional about it. So here's the teachable moment, courtesy of Leader B. Simply do those two things long enough and sincerely enough. You're going to wake up one day with an amazing team by your side that trusts you because they know you're not in it for you. He clearly started this years ago, by the way. There's no fast forward button on this stuff, unfortunately. And his belts have gotten tighter. It has been a huge return on investment. Leader A and our CEO friend, on the other hand, found out the hard way that there's no elevator in this model, right? They skipped empathy and rapport for some reason, hopped right over trust and went for influence. Much harder to pull off, right? 
Because again, there's no trust. Leaders in our space have gotten away with skipping these steps for years, primarily because of the work ethic of reps in my age bracket, because we'll just work through anything. We love to work. We have zero work-life balance. But then Generation Z came along and they changed everything. They aren't like my generation at all. They want authentic. They want experiential. Empathy and rapport are two of their major food groups. They demand work-life balance. And you know what? They're going to quit at the first sign of nonsense. And you know what? They're providing a service for us, right? They are a leadership canary in the coal mine of sorts as they find the holes. What's a canary in the coal mine, you ask? Here's some awesome trivia. John Scott Haldane, the father of oxygen therapy, his research led him to using canaries in coal mines as they are so much more sensitive to carbon monoxide than humans. And if the bird died, that would give miners a warning to evacuate. Time to get out. So if getting out is a theme on your team or your distributorship or your company, just know that's a sign, a canary in the coal mines, that maybe it's time to consider getting your steps in. Or maybe at the very least, just send a Christmas card to the surgeon who used a thousand of your joints last year. Look, I know my audience and there's a lot of leader bees out there. I want to encourage you, don't get weary and well-doing. Keep investing in those relationships around you all day, every day, because let's face it, you never know what season you're in. And for those in the audience looking in the mirror that are only seeing leader A right now, well, Dave Ramsey would encourage you with this amazing quote. It's never, let's say that again, it's never too late to turn things around. You are the only obstacle. I know we're coming into winter, but start planning tomorrow. Bolt the stairway onto your work relationships and you're going to see sprigs of green in no time. You don't believe me? I asked seven CEOs about this very concept, and they all said the same exact thing. How'd you get in my house? And get that microphone out of my face. (laughs) I'm just going to say it. I could get really used to carrying this thing around with me. Well, one implant system I really enjoyed carrying around was the Zimmer Biomet Comprehensive Shoulder. Dr. John Sperling, this gentleman, is one of those designing surgeons that is so passionate about his work. You just enjoy being around him, and it's such an honor to bring his story to the Device Nation audience. Dr. Sperling, a huge welcome. Look forward to opening up your amazing body of work. But first, let's go back to Rockland County. What put you on the path to medicine, sir? Yeah, it's interesting. I grew up in Rockland County, a suburb outside New York City, and my father was a general surgeon in solo practice for many, many years there. So I that was sort of the path I thought about going into medicine at a young age, eventually decided through the help of some good mentors to, to go in the direction of orthopedic surgery. What was your dad's practice like? My father was in practice. He was in solo practice. So he was on call every day. So he was on call seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And back then, there were only a believe it or not, just a few general surgeons in that whole county outside New York City. And uh, it really was eye-opening to me at a young age, the practice of medicine and surgery and the potential impact that you can have on people's lives. So going through high school and then into college, I I always thought I wanted to go into uh, surgery. Then along the way, I had to decide I actually got the applications for both general surgery. I thought I maybe wanted to do cardiac surgery or orthopedic. So I didn't decide to the very last minute in medical school that uh, orthopedic surgery was going to be for me. College and medical school at the University of Virginia. Charlottesville is just a beautiful area. What was your time like there? Oh, spectacular. I mean, I think Charlottesville has to be one of the nicest cities in America. I still go back there every year and enjoy some of the great, great things there. Try to get to a football game 
and play a little golf. But Charlottesville is just a great town, wonderful place to go to college and medical school in, and just uh, great memories there. On to the Mayo Clinic for residency. So much history there. That had to be just an incredibly inspiring experience. It was. I had a really wonderful time during my residency here. I think the interesting thing about Mayo Clinic, the residency, it's a very collaborative environment. We had residents my year. There was 12 of us all have different interests, all want to go to different parts of the United States when they're done in different types of practices. So it's a sense of collaboration, not competition. And it was a uh, a wonderful five years, very fortunate to find a number of great mentors here to help me along the path. Well, back to New York, to another storied location, Dr. Sperling, HSS for a sports and shoulder fellowship. A lot of the greats have come through there, haven't they? We did. You know, it was a bit of a culture shock, Kevin. So I went from, uh, you know, the Mayo Clinic here in Minnesota and ended up in Manhattan for the year. And that was just another terrific experience. I think one thing I saw at HSS as a fellow is the level of excellence of the work being done. It was just superb. And again, just having great mentors. I had Bob Cofield was my mentor here when I was a resident at Mayo Clinic wonderful shoulder surgeon. He's the one who really sparked my interest in going into shoulder surgery. And then when I got to special surgery in New York, a number of just phenomenal mentors from Ed Craig to Russ Warren, Frank Cordasco, Dave Dines, huge number of folks there. So I think I've been very fortunate along the way to have great mentors that have been instrumental in my career. Dr. Sperling, I'm discovering more and more surgeons every day with three letters after their name, MBA. I I just got to ask, what was your why for going after that? You know, again, I think you learn a lot from family members. My my father actually back in the day got a business degree and, and I saw the value of that. And then I started here at the Mayo Clinic and I could start seeing back in the early 2000s, this was 2001, 2003, that the business aspect of medicine was ramping up. And that really to try to make the most informed decisions that we could as a department here, that having an MBA would be helpful. I thought it was a great experience. The MBA program I did was up in Minneapolis and had people from a breadth of different backgrounds. And I think the interesting thing, Kevin, when people are done with an MBA, people go in different directions with it. The direction I decided to take was in the medical device area. So here at the Mayo Clinic, soon thereafter, I chair our device committee and I chair our finance committee. And then I'm on the institutional-wide committee where all of the new technology that comes into the operating rooms across Mayo Clinic comes in. So from cardiac surgery, ENT, orthopedics, every month I get a snapshot of every new technology that's being brought into the Mayo Clinic. So that was really a unique experience. And I think in large part, my getting my MBA uh, helped be able to uh, go along that path. I got to ask a question right there, Dr. Sperling. When I first started my career, if a surgeon wanted to use something, the OR director was like, well, how many would you like and what color? Uh, now, mm-hmm. That's right. we have these committees, we have these processes. What advice would you give to reps that seem a little frustrated by that sometimes? Yeah, that's such an insightful comment you're making, Kevin, because you're exactly right. When I was a resident in the 90s, you know, the surgeon asked for the implant or device and it came in and it's clearly a different world. So now I'm at a table where there are 26, 28 people at the table making a decision, and then typically there are two or three physicians, that's it. So I think when you bring any device or implant or technology, you have to think how it appeals to everyone around the table. So how is it going to affect the nurse manager who has to educate the scrub nurses on how to use the product? How do we impact 
the materials management? Does it displace a current product? There's only so much space on the shelf. The finance folks, what is it going to do with the overall cost of care? How is it going from the marketing side? How is it going to help differentiate your hospital from others in the area? So there are so many more factors now, Kevin, that go into the decision making. And my best advice is that for the surgeons who want to bring products forward, I've learned over time to having a letter or having information that clearly lays this out when you bring in a new product, how it has an impact on everyone at the table can really help facilitate its approval. Well, back to Mayo, sir, in 2000 to set up shop. Tell us about your practice. Yeah, Kevin, it's, it's really interesting. So I, I was very fortunate when I came in to, when I started practice in 2000, there was no reverse shoulder arthroplasty. High volume shoulder surgeons were doing 25 shoulder replacements a year. There was minimal to no, just the very beginning of arthroscopic cuff and arthroscopic bank heart, and we were still using blade plates for proximal humerus fractures. So it's amazing when from 2000 to 2022, about 95% of the operations I do now, I never learned when I was a resident or a fellow. Wow. Why did you choose to go academic over private? You know, I think for myself, I think everyone chooses jobs based on different things. Some people choose it based on the geographic location. Some people choose for money. And then other people choose for the specific type of practice they're going to have. And for me, it was really choosing a specific type of practice. I knew for myself that I wanted a practice that was going to focus in on shoulder surgery. And I had the unique opportunity to come in with Bob Cofield, who is my mentor. And Bob was had seven more years in practice when I started. So to be able, Kevin, every OR day to have someone there that you could run cases by and speak to just helps your learning curve dramatically. So for me, it was the opportunity to work with Bob. It was the opportunity to come here and practice at the Mayo Clinic. That's what drew me back here at, at the end of the day. Does my memory serve me correctly, sir? Was not the Cofield shoulder implant offering from Smith & Nephew some time ago? You have a great memory. That's exactly right. So Bob was the, the designer of the Smith & Nephew implant. And I think that as a part of our time together, I learned a lot from him about implant design. I also learned a lot from Bob about the value of reporting your results in a very honest, straightforward manner. So Bob was one of the original designers of the metal back glenoid. And I was there when the original, when the metal back glenoids were still putting in, Kevin, and for the first two, three years, they looked great. And then at about six years, accelerated polyethylene wear would happen, and then they started failing. Right. And, you know, Bob was a person who said, surgeons need to know about this. So he got that word out very quickly. That was just says something about his character. And to have someone that way to be your mentor meant a tremendous amount to me. Well, let's segue right into implant design, sir. Hot on the heels of the biomodular shoulder with Biomet came the comprehensive. And I think that was just one of the top ads to the table in the Zimmer Biomet merger. Tell us about the project, the genesis of it, and how you got it going. Yeah, it was an interesting process. I think that uh, as a part of the design team, we were fortunate to have great folks, a number of my mentors. Dave Dines, Ed Craig, Russ Warren. And the project was driven in large part by that collaboration, not only with surgeons, but engineers, people who are out in the field, sales rep, marketing folks, trying to hear what do surgeons want out there 
and what's going to be value to them in practice. And it really was, in many ways, from the engineer's perspective, ahead of its time. So back then, as you may recall, all stems were in two millimeter increments and went from six to eight all the way up to maybe to 14. The comprehensive was one millimeter increments from four to 20 in four different lengths. So really revolutionary in terms of thinking about how can we better match the patient's anatomy with a better offering of stems. I think the other key lesson to the system was having it simple and reproducible and being able to meet the demands of surgeons treating a wide variety of patients. So from surgeons who do a few a year to surgeons who do hundreds a year. I give a tremendous credit to the engineers as a part of that team to be able to come up with a system uh, like that. Yeah, the plasma spray on the stem was kind of unique at the time. It was. The plasma spray was very unique. Having four and five millimeter stems was very unique. The versatile on the humeral head, being able to titrate the humeral head the exact amount the surgeon wants above the greater tuberosity to appropriately tension and anatomic and then dial the glenosphere down the exact amount on, on reverse. These were key features that I think at the time, all of us didn't realize how valuable they would be. And even today in my practice, believe it or not, all these years later, 14 years later, 12 years later, that's what I use. And for me, in my practice, doing a tremendous amount of primary and revision work, it takes care of 99.5% of all my cases. So it's really stood the test of time in terms of what it's able to accomplish. A great set of instruments, by the way. You can have the greatest implant in the world, but if it's challenging to put it in because of the tools, that's another discussion. Great job on that. It's amazing. You know, I think it's the simplicity and efficiency. Even today, Kevin, after all these years, the system continues to grow around the world. And I think it's because of the simplicity, the efficiency, and the versatility at the time of surgery. There have been improvements to the system along the way, but I think the general concept that surgeons can make intraoperative decisions between total and reverse and be able to do that has really been uh, been extraordinarily helpful. I have heard one question from so many upper extremity surgeons over the years, Dr. Sperling, asking me when you're showing them a, an implant set, what's the next shaft angle? And I'm just curious. I wanted to hear it from you. Why 135 degrees? So over time now, it's evolved. So I think 135 has stood the test of time as being very durable. I've actually now, Kevin, I've switched over. So for all my anatomics since October of last year, I use a stemless implant on all my anatomic total shoulders. Mm -hmm. That gives me the ability now to be able, if I wanted to change the inclination angle, I'm able to do that. And I waited actually to go to stemless until I had that the versatile, the ability to dial the head up and down. And on the reverse side, I think that it's also shown the test of time that 135 and with a poly that matches that, which has a slightly larger lip inferiorly, has extremely low rates of revision. So I think maybe through engineering and good luck. That's probably the, <laughs> the best uh, logic behind why that worked out. Onlay versus inlay. I know I'm going to start a fight here, sir, ah. but uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm an onlay user. And, you know, we, um, I, it's again, the simplicity and efficiency of using onlay. It's uh, stood the test of time. And then I think it's always good at some point, Kevin, to do a gut check. So what we did is we looked up recently almost 3,000 primary reverse arthroplasties done here at the Mayo Clinic using a variety of implants. There's six different surgeons who do shoulder arthroplasty and reverses here. And the rate of acromial and scapular fractures with onlay is lower 
than inlay. So we've shown that it's slightly lower with onlay versus inlay. I can make intraoperative decisions if you were able to and would like. And we have papers coming out now that showing the rate of revision is far less than 1% per year. You put all those things together, it makes onlay, for me, the preferred choice. And the last thing I'll say is my good friend, Dr. DeQuinn at University of Buffalo says that an onlay is actually more bone preserving than inlay because you don't core out all that proximal humeral region to put the cup in. So for me, I've become an onlay user. Doctor, in reverse shoulders, 36 millimeter is pretty much ubiquitous. Is there any value in larger heads, smaller heads, or is 36 millimeter just the way to go? Yeah, I think it's something that I've learned over time. It's another one of those points that I've learned. So I actually use 40 glenospheres now. Okay in larger women and medium to larger men. So I use 40 glenospheres now. And that's evolved over the past just few years because I love the arc of motion and the stability with it. But I think another key thing we've learned is that you don't need to max out the glenosphere below the bottom part of the glenoid to prevent notching. All you need is just a few millimeters below the bottom part of the glenoid. So for me, I use an augmented base plate in all my reverses to be able to create the tilt and preserve glenoid bone. We have good evidence now that you can save over 50% glenoid bone using an augmented base plate compared to a standard base plate. So that's what I use on all my reverses now going on four years. And then we dial the glenosphere down a minimal amount. And I don't use plus three or plus six thicker glenospheres I use the augment to get the lateralization, and then I titrate the glenosphere down. But in the larger patients, I love the 40 due to the arc of motion. Augments, Dr. Sperling. Some surgeons say you don't need them. What do you say? That's interesting. I think there are some papers that come out that are, I think, for me, game changers in terms of practice. And there was a paper that came out in April 2019, Journal of Shoulder and Elbow Surgery, an article by Pascal Boileau. And it talks about the RSA angle. And what that paper shows, Kevin, is that when we do an anatomic total shoulder, the glenoid is tilted 11 degrees superior from the central part. But on a reverse, we put the base plate on the lower part of the glenoid, it's tilted 20 degrees with superior tilt. So we've learned with reverse, what's rule number one of reverse? You've got to avoid superior tilt. So there's only three ways to get rid of that tilt. You either ream away the bone, which we did for years, you use a bone graft, or you use an augment. The problem with reaming is you remove the best quality bone, the hard cortical bone. You medialize the base plate, which decreases tension on the cuff and deltoid. So we've learned that reaming, eccentric reaming is a problem. Bone grafting in the past two to three years, we've learned that there's a problem. So there's a paper from Rothman Institute, 25% failure with bone grafting primary reverse. Paper from the Mayo Clinic, 20 to 25% failure bone grafting revision reverse. So I think we've learned, Kevin, that bone grafting doesn't work so well. And my hip and knee colleagues tell me, you know, we told you so. You know, we could have told you that a few years ago. So that's why a lot of us have now switched to augments. Does humeral version matter in a reverse? You know, I think it does. I, I think it makes sense to me that the humerus faces across from the glenoid, if you put the arm in neutral position at 30 degrees of retroversion, that just tends to be where it, where it is. So I like to use instrumentation. And just as you talked about in the beginning, I love to use instrumentation because some surgeons used to put their reverses in zero degrees of retroversion. They'd have a problem with anterior instability. It isn't a mystery why. The humerus is faced towards the front. So I like 30 degrees of retroversion. I use instrumentation. Even on my stemless implants, anatomic, I use an extramedullary cutting guide. When I do reverse, I use an intramedullary cutting guide. And I've had patients sent to me where the surgeon said, I cut it in the quote-unquote anatomic version. And I've seen those in 70 degrees of retroversion and 30 degrees of anatomic version, right? It's hard with the naked eye sometimes 
to determine what the true version is. So as I learned when I was a resident, trust your instrumentation. So Dr. Sperling, we have Gramont in one corner of this boxing ring, and then Dr. Frankel came out swinging in his side of the ring. And I'm just curious, how would you referee those two positions? I think we've learned some lessons over time. So I think for me, I I agree that lateralization on the glenoid is a good thing. That's why I use augments, but I think excessive lateralization on the glenoid can be a bad thing. So it's sort of like having a Manhattan, right? One shot of bourbon in a Manhattan is good. Five shots is probably too many, right? (laughs) So, and I've seen this now. So I, I unfortunately saw, I've seen patients where on the glenoid side, people just over lateralize, put these super thick lenospheres in there and you can have problems with the axillary nerve with that. So I, I like just to get my lateralization through an augmented base plate, use a standard glenosphere, dial it down a minimal amount. And then on the humeral side, I like to adjust the soft tissue tension on the humeral side. So for example, some days I'll use a standard tray, but if the head's been riding up underneath the acromion, and for a long time, I can use an offset tray. So I use the a plus six offset tray all the time. So what does a lateral offset tray do? The engineers had to explain this to me a couple times. What it actually does is medializes a little bit and distalizes it. So it actually creates joint space. So that allows us, Kevin, not to over lateralize on the glenoid and humeral side. So augmented base plate on the glenoid, adjust the soft tissue tension on the humeral side with offset trays. That's how I do my reverses today. Guidance technology is just sweeping the table in joint reconstruction these days. Where do you see that helping upper extremity surgeons? I was a late adopter to this, you know, so I've gotten CT scans since my first day in practice, but I was a late adopter to 3D planning. And I think once you start 3D planning, it really does give you the backstage paths. It gives you the ability to really understand the anatomy. And I think for me, it was interesting, Tom DeQuinn, again, one of my great fellows from Buffalo had this study where he had me plan 50 consecutive reverses with 3D planning software. And I'm like, oh, come on, Tom, you know, do I really need to do this? I'm used to using CTs. So he had me plan them. And what it opened my eyes to was how much bone I can save on the glenoid side using augments. So it shows you the ability, how can I preserve bone How can I optimize the component position? And the other thing, which is kind of fun, is that I'll go to the OR someday, and I get guides now whenever I can. I'll put a cautery mark on the glenoid where I think the entry hole should be, and then I'll put the patient-specific instrument on there. And about 99% of the time, the guide is right and Sperling is wrong. Wow. So it shows it can make you a better surgeon. So I I like it. It makes it more reproducible. We get rid of either side of the bell-shaped curve. So I think it's been a a major step forward. Surgery is seeing, I remember a surgeon telling me many years ago, exposure has always been a challenge in this procedure. What are the top things, as you've seen surgeons come in and out of your facility, what are things that they can change to just help them see better? Yeah, that's such a great practical question. So I think the fellows and residents on my service and the people who come observe, I think the thing we've seen over time, the key to glenoid exposure is on the humeral side. For me, it's an aggressive head cut. So again, onlay helps with that. Osteophyte removal. You need to whittle down the peg. The more narrow the humerus is, the easier the glenoid exposure. So I remove all the osteophytes. I want it to be heart-shaped. Deltoid mobilization. Many times there's scar between the posterior rotator cuff and deltoid. Get all that scar, free all that up an inferior capsule release. Release the capsule off the inferior part of the glenoid. The other things I've learned over time is sit the patient straight up and down on the glenoid. The humerus falls more posterior inferior. And over the past few years, I use a retractor. It's a glenoid access retractor that's got two 
prongs in it, but it's also got a circle where the propeller and a reamer can go through. So I think it's bed positioning, retractor, and get your glenoid exposure on the humeral side. Metal allergies in the shoulder. We've been talking about this in the total joint space for a long time. Where are we in the shoulder? I think there are some patients and some surgeons that have strong feelings about this. And there are some companies that have nickel-free implants available. And, and I think that's very reasonable to have available for patients that state specific allergies. We've actually published on that at Mayo, both on the knee arthroplasty side and the shoulder arthroplasty side. On the shoulder arthroplasty side, we looked at a series of patients that said they had a metal allergy and found out that with that type of metal in them, that they did just fine. So I think the jury is still out. Uh, I think some of the basic science evidence is compelling, but I think the clinical evidence is mixed. Well, here in 2022, sir, is there any role for a hemiarthroplasty anymore? I think it's really in the, in the young, active patient that wants no restrictions. So I still do occasional. I did a hemiarthroplasty yesterday on a young gentleman in his mid-30s who farms, and he wanted no weight restriction. There is no great science on the weight restriction, what we give totals and reverses compared to hemis. I tell patients roughly a 25-pound weight limit with that arm, and there are some patients that don't want a weight limit. So yes, I think it's for the extremely active younger patient. I still consider hemiarthroplasty. I tell them there's lower chances of pain relief and perhaps less complete pain relief than a total reverse but the benefit is they're able to resume activities eventually without restrictions. Total shoulder question, does glenoid size have any effect on stability? I think it does. I, I think when in doubt, we have one paper from our lab here that shows going up in glenoid size can improve stability. And I think for myself now, when in doubt, I do try to get the larger glenoid component in there because I think it can help. Great question, and I do like to put the larger size glenoid in if I can. Let's talk about infection, nobody's favorite subject. Mm -hmm. Where are we on shoulders? What can surgeons be doing next week to help prevent infection? I get that question a lot, and I, I think there's a lot of discussion now about preoperative solutions between putting uh, peroxide on the skin and certain things to be able to kill the bacteria, to intraoposal. Stop. I will tell you, I think the most powerful factor in preventing infection in the shoulder is the length of time the wound is open. So as the door is open, the dust from the computer is circulating in the air, the nurse anesthetist comes in and out of the room. So for me, doing a procedure in a simple, efficient manner, ideally, which has gotten harder recently with a dedicated team, is the number one risk factor for infection in my mind. So it's less about the surgeon than it is the team, and it's the efficiency of the procedure. A lot of reps walking around with fancy schmancy lavage in their bag for a washout for infected joints. Do you think there's value in these things, and do you think they have any role in a primary setting? You know, there may be. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. So I think it's too early to tell about that. But again, I've become a big believer in that it's probably your scrub nurse and circulator have more of an impact on infection in the shoulder than probably anyone else. Their ability for you to do the procedure efficiently is key. I think moving the procedure along, trying to do an arthroplasty, shoulder arthroplasty in whatever time you think is appropriate or less is very important. We're seeing a lot of 1.5 exchanges coming into the joint reconstruction space for infected cases. Any role for that in the shoulder? You like doing an antibiotic spacer and let it marinate for six weeks. What are your thoughts? Most of the people that I see have chronic infection. So it's pretty rare that someone has an acute infection in my practice. So someone who said I had a well-functioning implant 
than less than a week ago, I got an infection in there from either a dental or another region, or I did an orthoplasty on someone and they come back and have an acute infection. That's rare. Most of the people that I see have a chronic infection that has been going on for months. And I prefer a two-stage in those. And that's what I do, Kevin. So for me, what I do is I remove the implant. I put an antibiotic spacer in there and they get typically six weeks of IV antibiotics. They're off for two weeks. We check their blood work. If it's trending in the right direction, then I re-implant them at eight weeks. So it's very structured that way, the way we do it at Mayo. I don't re-aspirate the patient that way. And I like doing it at eight weeks. If you wait longer than that, the amount of scarring in the shoulder could be tremendous and it could make the re-implant more difficult. So I like a two-stage for a chronic infection. I know some surgeons are advocating for a one-stage But for me, I like a two-stage procedure. Well, now we come to the fun part, Dr. Sperling, revisions and getting these things out. I saw a great article of yours referencing humeral windows. Any pearls for getting the stem out Mm -hmm. with so many of them having that circumferential collar to try to get around? I think I've been so fortunate here at Mayo Clinic, not only have great mentors, but my OR days. The OR day I'm on, I'm the only shoulder surgeon And I've been lucky to have world-famous hip and knee surgeons from Dan Barry to Rob Truesdale, folks like that. And I've learned so much from them about component removal. So the way I remove almost all humeral components is I use a router bit that's tapered. It's not a burr. It's a router bit that's tapered circumferentially around the humerus. And then I use a square tip impactor from below. And a great trick I learned from the hip and knee surgeons is if the stem does not have a collar, I make my own collar. I take a helicoidal burr, I burr right into the side of the implant, right into the metal, and make my own collar. And Jason Kang, one of my fellows, looked this up, 550 of my revisions, I think there were 280 cases where the stem was very well fixed, 99% you can remove from above with that router bit and square tip impactor. So since I've gone to that technique, less than 1% of the time now do I need to do a window. So I like trying to remove the stem from above. The other big benefit, if you do a split down the humerus, you're obligated to use cables or something circumferential, and I worry about the radial nerve. So for me, I like to do everything I can from above. There's been quite an influx, sir. Porous end growth technology everywhere in orthopedics. Let's talk about the glenoid. The good news is that thing has really grown in. The bad news is it's really grown in and we've got to take it out now. Any pearls on porous end growth glenoids? I think that's another interesting area. So we've had an interest in that at the Mayo Clinic from different areas. So I'm not a big fan of full metal back glenoid components. Still, over time, if you look at the track record out there, they have accelerated polyethylene wear. So having metal fully on the back of a glenoid, I'm not a big fan of. And all polyglenoid, the problem with that is we know bone is never going to grow into cement or polyethylene. So that failure is, in many ways, inevitable. And then what we've used here at Mayo and other places is is hybrid fixation. So there's porous growth centrally on the post but you retain the normal thickness of polyethylene on the surface and on the back of the glenoid. So that's what we've used here at Mayo, I have, is a a hybrid fixation. And we just looked up between Campbell Clinic, Mayo Clinic, and University of Buffalo, 1,550 hybrid glenoids put in starting in 2012, and the rate of loosening is less than 0.3%. Wow. So I think that having a little bit of porous growth metal 
on the central post is great because you have the opportunity for bone to grow in, but I don't like the whole surface because the revision of a hybrid glenoid is pretty easy. You split the glenoid, you core out the center part, the hybrid fixation, you put a base plate in there, and you're off to the races. So just like the analogy with lateralization on the glenoid, a little is good, a lot is not great. I think it's the same with porous growth metal with glenoid components. Any role for 3D printed solutions in these challenging revisions? I know Zimmer Biomat has a pretty robust platform there. I do. I use that on occasion. Again, so for me, it's probably three to five cases a year. And I think for me, it's the failed reverse where I'll take out all the components. There's severe bone loss, a bit of antibiotic spacer in there. I like to use the spacer. Clearing cleans everything out. Then I get a perfect CT scan for the uh, VRS. And then there are some patients on the primary side that do have severe glenoid bone loss. And I think for me, it's one of those cases when you need it, there's nothing else like it. I have learned some tricks with that, the exposure with that. I make sure that I really have good exposure. And then if you're going to use any type of those custom implants, making sure that you have an anterior flange, if at all possible, is helpful because that helps you lock it in to the anterior part of the glenoid. The last thing I'll say about that, Kevin, is when you do those complex revisions, if there is no posterior wall, you have to accept up front those are harder because it's more difficult to get your retractor in there. There's nothing for it to lever against, so those can be more challenging cases. So a couple tips over time, but I I probably do three to five a year, and when you really need it, it's been a terrific option. Why are shoulders failing in 2022? I think that they're failing in one on the anatomic side is all polyglenoid components are, after a period of time, they begin to loosen, typically about five to eight years out. So we're seeing on the anatomic side and cuff failure. I think on on anatomic with stemless now, the number one mode of failure I see is actually cuff failure, not a stemless anatomic loosening. And the reason is you have to be able to titrate the head up and down. So the failures of anatomics that I see are stemless due to cuff failure and all polyglenoids loosening. That's anatomic. On the reverse side, the big problem failure I see, which is really challenging, is component malposition. So typically putting the base plate of the glenoid component on reverse too high on the glenoid surface. Many surgeons plan the case, but they don't have the ability to execute the plan when they get to the OR. They tend to place the base plate too high. And I've had the painful experience of being in there where the base plate and glenosphere is too high. And if the surgeon uses a glenosphere where a screw goes through the glenosphere into the base plate and they strip the screw, that makes for a bad day, Kevin, because if you can't dissociate the glenosphere from the base plate, it makes removing the component really difficult. I remember the first time I saw the weep hole technique, evacuating the glenoid of liquids so that cement would have some place to go. I was just wondering, as you look at these all polyglenoid failures, is there anything that surgeons can be doing to maximize the longevity of that cement mantle? I think it's the things you said, making that surface as dry as possible. What I do here, and I'm lucky to be here at Mayo where they facilitate this for me, I think hypotensive anesthesia helps me quite a bit. So I don't have an enormous amount of bleeding out of the glenoid when I'm trying to cement it in. The other big thing on the anatomic side is, is that if a glenoid component with an interference fit, I typically cement the glenoid component and pack it in and I go right back to the humeral side. I don't wait for the cement to harden typically. And the benefit of that is that the arm is in that stretch position for five to 10 minutes less. 
and that's the position where a patient gets a neuropraxia. So our rate of neuropraxia is here at Mayo has dropped almost to nothing because we've done, gone to that on the anatomic side. I've seen surgeons over my career, Dr. Sperling, that some would put cement in just the drill holes for the glenoid, and I've seen others that treated it like a total knee, and cement went everywhere. Do you have any thoughts on that? I, I've actually switched in the past three years. So I used to do the cement in the three holes and, and a stripe of cement on the front and the back, and I've actually just gone to the three holes now. The, 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 the data is mixed one way or the other. But for myself now, I just put it in the three holes. I, so I put cement in the three peripheral holes, and I have porcine growth centrally. And for me, that's the technique that I've been using. Put your future hat on for a second, Dr. Sperling. What's next for metal and plastic in the shoulder? I think over time, I think one thing is, I think over time we may see a, a trend. We're already seeing this a little bit. We've gone through reversomania where there's so many reverses in some markets, Australia, <laughs> other places, it's 80% reverse. Wow. I think you're hearing more high-volume surgeons in the U.S. switching to go back to do a little more anatomic. And I, I have no upper age limit for anatomic myself. I do anatomics. I did a stemless anatomic this week in someone in their early 80s. So I personally like anatomics. When I have the opportunity to do them, I do them. So I think in the future, you may see a, a switch back towards that. I think stemless is here to stay on anatomic and perhaps in the future on reverse. And I think what we're going to see is more and more monitoring of patients remotely, being able the ability preoperatively to see what patients are doing intraoperatively and then postoperatively. So I think technology is really going to help drive quite a bit of what we do over the next five years. You've done a lot of work in the rotary cup space, Dr. Sperling. Yeah. I couldn't resist. I had to do that. Where are we on the surgical solution for this? I think we've learned some lessons over time. So I think for myself, we've learned about the benefit, at least when I look at the literature of double row technique compared to single row technique. I think that we've seen that patients who are younger with acute tears really can benefit from operative intervention. I think that the jury is still out, I think, on some of these other solutions that are not cuff repairs and not reverses. So we did a really interesting study here. One of our star residents, Eric Morigi, did this. He did a cost comparison between a SCR and a tissue transfer and reverse arthroplasty, all with a massive non-repairable rotator cuff. It's interesting. The least expensive operation is the reverse arthroplasty. Wow. Yes. So when you take an SCR, you add in the anchors in the graft, take out the operative time of doing a tissue transfer, and the most efficient operation from a cost perspective is actually a reverse arthroplasty. Interesting, isn't it? Very. And I think that you may start seeing the same thing when it comes to balloon, similar to SCR, similar to tissue transfer. I think the jury is still out on a number of those solutions. But for now... For me in my practice, if I can get a complete repair or at least a partial repair, I love to do cuff repairs whenever possible. If it's non-repairable or the patient has escaped, I tend to do reverse arthroplasty. I think the jury is still out for some of the other solutions. I would love to hear your thoughts on the role of orthobiologics in this disease. Uh, adipose tissue, BMP5, bone marrow aspirate concentrates. What do you think? I'm hopeful that in the future that we will be able to go ahead and have some of these solutions to be able to accelerate the healing or improve the rate of healing. It's still, my patients wonder why my one of my partners does direct anterior approach to the hip 
and he has people back at the gym in a week. And they have a neighbor who gets a direct anterior approach, and they're back at the gym in a week, and my patient's still in a sling at four to six weeks. So I think that I'm hopeful that some of these solutions will come about. But again, I think we just don't have enough data and evidence out there at least for me personally, to incorporate these into my practice at this point. I remember when tissue reinforcement patches first came out, and I was just wondering, do they have a role? I think they might. I think that there may be a role for that. I think it comes down again to the evidence involved. I would hope that we would find ways to be able to improve the stability of the construct, particularly the sutures pulling through the rotator cuff tendon. I hope there are solutions down the road that we would have to be able to do that but I think the jury is still out. Any place for an open repair these days? Yes, absolutely. So I've actually gone through the whole evolution of my practice. So I did open, and then I was lucky. I went out and visited Steve Burkhart, Jim Esch, and Steve Snyder. So three legends in arthroscopic repair and spend time with each of them. And then I came back to the Mayo Clinic, and all I did was arthroscopic repair for years. And then I started, to, then I switched back. And then I started doing a mixture in my practice. So I think there definitely is a role. I think that if you actually look at the outcomes, I don't think there's much evidence to prove that an arthroscopic repair in terms of the integrity of the repair is better than an open repair. If you look at the time efficiency, it's probably better. And if you look at the cost, it's probably better doing an open repair. And in my patients here, it's interesting. I don't have anyone ever ask me which they're going to have done. I think that they just want a solution. And they don't care if it's open or arthroscopic because at the end of the day, the post-op rehab is the same. So yes, I think there definitely is a role for open repair. You know, doctor, as we move a lot of these cases into the surgery center these days, cost concerns are on everybody's mind. I'm hearing more talk about transosseous repair versus anchors that can get a little spendy on a patient charge. Any thoughts about those two technologies? I think there is. You know, I think cost is a challenge. I would say for myself, I think that the double row repair has stood the test of time in terms of the strength of the repair. There's tremendous evidence of it. So I love the double row repair, and that's what I use in my practice. Mm-hmm. But I think the cost issue is a concern. And um, there's a company up in Minneapolis that I know that has developed anchors that are more cost effective. And it's been very attractive to a number of different hospitals that way. And that's actually what I use in my practice, a company called Responsive Arthroscopy that's been able to do that. So I think that we are entering an era where there are premium products that are expensive, like a VRS. So when I have a patient with severe glenoid bone loss and I need an implant that's designed specifically for that patient, that that is a big cost, but that's when I really need it. When I do a double row repair, there's an opportunity for me to save some money as a part of that. I think that's an opportunity on the anchor side to save some money. So I think it's a balance. And I think that's a new era of orthopedics we're heading towards where We do have to have a degree of cost consciousness, and how can we have an equivalent solution at a lower cost? Great thought, sir. Uh, I was in a case a while back ago with a soldier who had an isolated lesion on his glenoid, and we tried de novo on him. It actually worked very well, and I was just curious, uh, what are your thoughts on isolated lesions in the shoulder? Is there a place for Cardacel or, or anything? out there? You know, I think there may be. You know, what we have one of my younger partners here, a couple of them uh, who have a strong interest in that. I send those patients to them, and I have sent a few of those patients exactly what you described. There are younger patients, and it's sort of like a linoleum floor. 
they have a specific injury and you sort of start peeling up the tile and you have younger patients that have isolated areas of cartilage loss. So I definitely, those are ones that I think that are ideal for someone that has a special interest in that area. I've definitely have sent folks for evaluation of that. Dr. Sperling, I just saw an article the other day on the CMS Innovation Center talking about a 10-year strategic roadmap prioritizing value-based care. Any thoughts on what that's all about? and the implications for you and your practice? I think it's going to be interesting. I think that we are now entering an era where we're having to prove our outcomes. So for the amount of resources we put into it, what's the value and benefit for a patient? I would just tell you, I feel so fortunate again in the past 20 years to be involved in shoulder surgery when I am with the development of reverse arthroplasty, wider solutions to help people with shoulder pathology. Because when we look at value, you know, shoulder patients are measurable, Kevin, as you remember, and as you know, they can't sleep at night because of the pain. They can't do their activities of daily living. You take people from a level of independence to dependence. And with shoulder arthroplasty and cuff repair, we're able to restore their independence. We're able to do that in shoulder. We're able to do that across orthopedics. So I think we're really well situated in the future orthopedic surgery to proving our value. I think we're in, we're in a really good spot for orthopedics. And I think in the world of shoulder surgery, we really are extremely well situated to be able to do that. Your entire career just so full of offices, health, committee assignments, leadership positions. Any thoughts as you look back on, on those roles and what it takes to, to excel in them? The major thing now is understanding that in 2022, that the decision-making in hospitals truly is collaborative. It is no longer the surgeon demanding or asking to use a certain product. It's really understanding and positioning that product or implant or device. How does it impact the entire healthcare team from the nurse manager, materials management, finance? And I think when you look at it from that perspective, you're going to be more successful. But I think as a surgeon, understanding that all of those groups have a significant impact of the quality of your life on a daily basis. I like to joke, Kevin, that if I had three cell phones that rang, the nurse manager, my mom, or my wife, I'm answering the nurse manager's phone first, right? <laughs> right. right? She probably has more power over my life than my wife or my mom because she determines OR allocation. She determines who's in my OR. She determines all these things. So I think understanding that it's a, it's, it's a new world in that regard and engaging with all of those team members is going to help you be successful in your individual practice, but it's also going to be help your department move forward within the hospital and institution. You know, part of that collaborative group of people is certainly the rep. Uh, and I was just curious, you've certainly had your share coming in and out of your OR over your 22-year career. Any advice to them, sir, as to how we can do our job better in 2022? Tell you, I've been so fortunate. I have in the past, since 2006, so for 16 years, I've worked with only two reps and they have been spectacular. And I think they can bring such enormous value to the OR experience. So I think that the OR reps are instrumental in first, if you're at an academic institution, helping to educate the residents and fellows. So when residents and fellows are on my service, the rep I work with makes sure they have all the educational material on the procedures that I'm doing, have access to the videotapes, arrange to take them to the cadaver lab to take them through a procedure. 
because that does a number of things. When that resident or fellow shows up the first day on my service, it's going to make him look good. It's going to help them. It helps the rep in terms of facilitating the procedures itself. It helps the rep for the long-term relationship with that resident or fellow when they go out to practice. I think that it adds, the rep can add so much value in the operating room, making that procedure go smoothly, getting there before the case starts, knowing the individual setup that I have, what are the implants that I'm likely to use that they're in the room? If I switch and change from anatomic to reverse, is it available? So I would say that the reps are an integral and key part of the team. And I would not underestimate your value that you bring to the procedure, you bring to the surgeons, and you bring to everyone as a part of the team. So I, I think it's an integral part of the procedure. I do not see the reps here at the Mayo Clinic or perhaps among my colleagues going away anytime soon, going to a repless system. I don't also see them going on a remote location. I think being there in the operating room brings enormous value. You've successfully navigated industry relationships over your entire career, sir. Any pointers for surgeons listening that may want to initiate that engagement and could use some advice? I think that the best advice I have in working with industry and the most successful teams that I've ever been a part of on industry are not purely surgeon-driven in decision-making. So I think that there's huge value when you work with industry to listening to what people out in the sales force, out in the field, are hearing from surgeons who are doing a few a year to doing hundreds of year, because their experience may be different than yours. Or the surgeon elsewhere that's having traveling nurses in their OR now all the time. Again, the collaborative, listening to what people are saying. I think if you have an interest in working with industry, I think it's an exciting area. I think innovating implant design is, I've enjoyed tremendously. And I think expressing your interest uh, to the companies in that area, if you have ideas, I think it's great to let them know you have ideas about how to improve either an implant or an instrument. But I think it's been extremely enjoyable. And I think that Working with, again, a great group of engineers from a company, you can learn a tremendous amount. The best products that I've seen on the market are through very, very smart engineers coming up with great solutions after hearing surgeon input. Dr. Sperling, you've had quite a legacy with residents and fellows over your career. I'm looking here at page after page of just some incredible names that have come out of that facility. That has to be a very rewarding part of your career. And I'm just curious if we put a microphone in front of you, which I guess metaphorically we are here, uh, any advice to them as they launch out into their practices around the country and today's climate? I would say that the, uh, you know, the residents and fellows, I, I think that being conservative when you start out in practice is important. You know, I think back when I started in practice, I would do one or two cases every OR day. That's it and built it up over time. So being conservative, I think at first is is critical. So I went from 30 arthroplasties a year, the next year 40, 50, 60, 70, and about year five, it took off. So it takes time. I think patience is important. I think sticking to those principles that you learned as a resident and a fellow is important. That's number one. The second is, is that I think seeking out mentors is enormously helpful along the way either through mentors that you've had as your training or the practice that you're joining. And I think those things will suit you well. And the last piece of advice is I think the world and the world of orthopedics is changing rapidly from practices being bought to private equity investment 
I think speaking and getting as much information from people who are a year or two above you on what they've done is important. And the last piece of advice I would give is understand very clearly, why are they hiring you? And sometimes the people who have the absolute best insight into practices are the sales reps because they know exactly how busy those surgeons are in the group you're thinking of joining. What are those surgeons' personalities like in the operating room? Are they respected by the people they work with? So I think talk to your local sales rep about the area that you want to go. They know people there. Really try to find out the backstory of those practices and the people you're going to join. Great advice, sir. Whenever you decide to hang up your hat and look back over the entire breadth of your career, what would you like your legacy to be? I think it's what you just said, Kevin. I think for me, I think the most rewarding part about being here has been on the education side, being around residents and fellows and teaching them and seeing the progression, seeing fellows start the year and where they end up when they leave. They're comfortable. They're confident in their abilities. So I think for me, it's the education on the residents and fellows here. I think it's, I've been very fortunate to be able to speak around the United States and world to educate surgeons around the world on how to improve patient care. So I think at the end of the day, it's all of us working together from the companies to the surgeons and on the education side, how can we improve patient outcomes? So hopefully I've been able to, to make an impact in that area. What do you like to do outside the OR? The two hobbies I'm into, Kevin, I love to play golf. And I think I discovered that 30 minutes from Rochester, Minnesota are spectacular streams for trout. So I picked up fly fishing. I told myself I'd pick it up when I turned 50, which was almost four years ago. So I love to go fly fishing here in Minnesota and golf. I've got two boys. I've got a 19-year-old and a 14-year-old. So enjoy spending a lot of time with them and my wife and family. So I think it's family time, getting outdoors. Those are the things I enjoy the most. I remember being at the Virginia Creeper Trail, just an amazing place. And there's a trout stream there that's regarded as one of the greatest along the East Coast. And I was just watching in awe these people casting. Is it easy? It doesn't look easy. It's not easy, but once you pick it up, it's not too difficult. But I have to tell you, it's so much fun, Kevin. So I have to... Two weeks ago, I went out in the evening, and it's grasshopper season, hopper season. So I went out, and I casted. I put a hopper out there on the water, and this huge rainbow trout wow. jumped up, took it. And I got to be honest, I was more excited than I think I'd ever been on Christmas Day. I've got this huge rainbow trout. Take a picture of it. I did prove that the iPhone 13 is waterproof. It did did, it did <laughs> fall in the creek. <laughs> But I got a great picture of the trout. I was super excited. So I'd encourage anyone out there, you're never too old to learn how to fly fish. It, it, it is a lot of fun. Well, Dr. Sperling, you are truly a man in full. I just want to thank you on behalf of our entire audience for your incredible contributions to our space. And personally, it was a privilege to represent your shoulder. Appreciate you so much and your heart for the work we do. Thank you for coming on and sharing your life with us, sir. Kevin, thank you so much for the opportunity. You're the master at interviewing. Yes, such great questions. And again, I really do appreciate you reaching out to me and asking me to be a part of it. It was a lot of fun. Really enjoyed it. And as you said, the hour flew by and um, appreciate you thinking of me. Gentle Giant was a prog rock band back in the 70s. But guess what? We just heard from one. So thankful to Dr. Sperling for coming on. Just an incredible body of work coupled with such a personable je ne sais quoi. He really tied this episode up in a bow for all of us. Orthopedics is changing rapidly. Collaboration is a huge piece of what to do next to prosper in the midst of it all. 
collaboration begins with empathy and rapport. I need to work on rapport with my wife as she always seems to start every conversation with, are you listening to me? (laughs) As we close up shop here, I looked up top 10 tips for fly fishing and we're going to leave out nine of them. Number one jumped out at me. Ask local fishermen about which flies are best to use. Dr. Sperling did a great job identifying the incredible value of the local fisherman, the rep. And as leader of these so-called fishermen from team member, yes, you are leading those around you, even if you're not the lead, to the team leader, the distributor, all the way up to CEO. If it's that rainbow trout you're after, subordinating yourself and asking questions like, what flies are best to use? What needs to happen with inventory, commissions, work-life balance in 2023? Engage with and encourage those around you like never before, as again, you don't know what season you're in. A lot of leaders and reps are feeling like this is winter. Five years from now, we may look back and realize, no, this was actually spring. Look, it is such a privilege to work alongside you, the listeners, as we collaborate. I hope you have a great day, a great week, and I'll see you at the Scrub Sink. Scrub Sink.